The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we are taking a close look at conservation NGOs, what they are, how they work, and most importantly, why we need them. We'll be speaking with Shaila Raghav, climate change lead at Conservation International, about using strategy and policy to tackle climate change. Then we'll speak with Rebecca Shaw, chief scientist with the World Wildlife Fund, about how and why you should get involved with conservation initiatives. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hasra. With me is Shaila Raghav, climate change lead with Conservation International. Shaila, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks, Anika. All right, so let's start with getting to know Conservation International as an NGO, a non-governmental organization. So can you tell us a little bit about how CI identifies itself? What is its mission? So Conservation International was started about 30 years ago, and I would say um, in a nutshell, we work to protect the nature that people need to thrive, um, and we do that through partnerships, and we work um, with local communities, with governments, and with businesses to accomplish that mission. Okay, so what would make what makes CI different from other NGOs that deal with you know environmental and wildlife conservation, climate change, and other environmental issues? So I would say a, a couple things distinguish um, our approach to conservation. The first is that we work, um, we have a field presence all around the world. So we have about 30 programs that um, are mostly in the developing world um, in places that have high biodiversity richness. So um, some of our biggest programs are in countries like Indonesia and Brazil. Um, and uh, our, our approach really is to work with um, local governments and local communities. And so our uh, offices around the world are, are mostly comprised of, of local staff. Um, and our approach is really to work with um, the local cultures, um, the local livelihoods, um, to be able to find a more sustainable way of integrating um, various sectors. Um, and so we, we don't approach conservation from just one perspective. We look at how we can embed and integrate um, um, meaningful consideration of the value of nature for development, for livelihoods, for incomes um, across sectors. So how does Conservation International go about hiring local staff? Is there some sort of training or educational process that's put in place to make sure these staff members are um, qualified to work for an NGO? Right. So we have um, our centralized headquarters is based in Arlington. So there's about 300 of us based here. Um, and then the bulk, the, the, the rest of our staff, or we have a, almost 1,000 people at CI, um, are um, uh, dispersed across our field programs. Um, and they're led by a country director who, um, in, in most cases, is from that country. And then um, uh, basically depending on the, um, the, the priorities of that country, they then will hire staff that have the requisite skill sets. So it might be um, terrestrial protected area management skills, or it could be um, a more marine focused program, um, in which case that they may um, hire marine biologists. Um, in, in some cases, 
um, there's policy expertise that's needed um, for a particular priority or engagement. So it really runs the gamut of, of um, different disciplines um, depending on um, the, the, the local priorities of our offices. Okay, so can you tell me some examples of the kind of programs Conservation International has developed and implemented? So I would say that, that our, our legacy really started with a, an approach and a model of establishing protected areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and Conservation International has um, set up more than um, 1,000 protected areas around the world that um, uh, are, are really large in size. And if we added up, it's, it's India, the, the sizes of India, Indonesia, and Colombia combined. Um, which is, is really quite um, um, a, a massive impact that, that we've been able to have as an institution. Um, and so we do work um, in, in establishing protected areas, creating conservation incentives, um, but we also work on um, sustainable finance, for example. So we have a, an entire division that's dedicated to creating innovative instruments to sustain um, uh, these projects over time so that they don't um, uh, they don't um, crumble after the, the initial source of grant funding um, uh, runs out. We have um, a, a division that works on corporate partnerships. So we have um, uh, we've worked with companies like Walmart and with Starbucks for decades um, to help them to um, integrate sustainability into their their business model and their their supply chains. Um, we we recently um, uh, reached the milestone of um, 100% sustainable coffee with Starbucks using standards that CI helped Starbucks to develop. Um, we we work uh, through coalitions and and partnerships with other um, and NGOs and and peer organizations. Um, so I would say our approach really um, is about work empowering and working with. Um, many different sectors in, a, in an interdisciplinary and integrated way um, so that we can lead to uh, more uh, sustainable and impactful conservation. Okay, so why are protected areas a priority for Conservation International? Protected areas are uh, a really important tool. Um, I would say that that our approach to protected areas isn't simply to um, set aside or, or or build a fence around an area, um, or even just um, seek the implementation of a policy. It really requires um, a lot of different types of programs to support the local communities that um, um, are directly um, uh, benefiting from. Um, the integrity of ecosystems. And so um, I, I can give an example. We, we, we have um, some work in the Alto Mayo region of Peru where um, it's, it's an established protected area, but we've been able to use carbon credits and the, the mechanism of Red Plus, which is reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation, um, to help inject um, a, an additional source of resources and funding for local communities to get training on agriculture um, so that they can increase the yields, uh, increase their, their incomes, and reduce pressure on uh, encroachment into the protected area. So our approach um, is really to um, find ways to identify the places around the world that are the most important for the, the various services that they provide, whether it's um, erosion control or flood prevention, pollination, all of the various services that, that intact ecosystems provide, um, and then creating um, an approach and a, and a process and a mechanism that can sustain 
the the protection of those areas while also supporting the local communities um, and, and local governance structures. Okay, so it sounds like Conservation International focuses on the needs of people first, so food, livelihoods, fresh water. Why is that? So um, uh, we are an environmental organization, but I would even argue and say that um, I see us as a development organization because um, people need nature. We we rely on nature for um, our source of water, for um, providing a whole host of, of um, services to us, and the biodiversity helps to, to make the planet more resilient, um, ensure that we have stocks of seed, um, that we have seed dispersers. And so um, there's a number of, of services that are provided that we don't necessarily value in a monetary or economic way, um, but are crucial for our future and for our livelihood. So um, uh, our approach is really that for the survival of humanity, we need to put a, a, an emphasis and a focus on and redefine how we approach development by uh, ensuring that nature is implicit within our definition of development. So do you think we should conserve nature, wildlife, and biodiversity insofar as it serves human needs, or do you think nature deserves to be conserved for the sake of itself? I think that's a, a really great question. What I would I would say is that I don't see any distinction between nature and people. I think that we live in an interconnected world, and even though a person may not live directly adjacent to or in nature, quote-unquote, uh, there is an inherent link and connection um, between our species and every other species out there. So having a more resilient and robust um, rich, uh, richness of species and biodiversity helps all people, um, whether it be through uh, uh, ensuring uh, more genetic diversity that helps um, our planet respond to sh climate shocks um, or it's the pollination services. Um, I think however far removed nature may seem from, uh, seem from us, um, I think that there's an inherent and direct connection between all forms of nature and human beings. So I think if we are saving nature, but with the intention um, of, of, of it being um, in here for, for the inherent value of nature, we are also, in effect, helping humanity as well. So how would you compare Conservation International to the work of other large environmentally focused NGOs? How does Conservation International complement the work of other NGOs like WWF, the Nature Conservancy, or the Wildlife Conservation Society? Yeah. I think that our mission is so so ambitious that we can't do it alone. Mm -hmm. uh, but each of our each big NGO has um, its own niche, its own um, expertise, its own approach, uh, networks, contacts, partnerships that are distinct and unique, and and draw upon the experience of each distinct organization. Um, for Conservation International, I think our our presence, um, our our model of um, of partnership um, and grant making um, distinguishes us um, and, and gives us the opportunity to work, um, to have the flexibility to work um, differently than other large NGOs might. Um, I also think that our uh, presence, our uh, uh, country presence, um, gives us the case studies, the examples, the demonstrations, and the knowledge to know 
um, and, and recommend how these programs can be mainstreamed and scaled up around the world. Okay. So I'm sure Conservation International has its own unique set of benefits and issues that come with being a large NGO. Um, but you've actually worked with smaller NGOs in the past. So could you describe from your perspective how a larger NGO functions differently from a smaller one? I think from a large NGO perspective, um, uh, we, we have a lot of staff and we have a lot of divisions and, uh, uh, and departments within the organization. So what can be a little bit challenging is, is coordination and, and um, um, uh, ensuring that we're all in step with each other um, to, to, to make sure that um, our work on uh, science is linked to our work on policy, um, is linked to our work with the corporate sector and finance, and ensuring that we're all um, uh, working towards the same goal. And I think that's where having a, a role like mine, um, I, I, I sit within the strategy uh, team here at CI, um, and my job is really to, to ensure that we're, uh, as an institution, working towards co coherent and uniform and consistent goals um, on climate change particularly. Um, and so I think the unique challenge um, is just making sure that we're all coordinated um, and that we, we're all learning and building um, upon the same foundation. Um, so it's really important to have um, centralized coordination functions um, to, to, to make sure that we're not, um, we're not missing opportunities or we're not um, building on our, our rich experience from the past. It's a great segue into my next question. So your role at Conservation International is the climate change lead. So could you explain a little bit more detail what exactly you do in this role? Absolutely. So my background is, is climate change policy. So um, I've uh, gone to almost every um, climate change um, negotiation, the, the United Nations COPs, for the last decade nearly. Um, and so my background is really about creating the international uh, mechanisms and processes um, that pave the way for funding and, and action at the national or local level. Um, my role specifically as climate change lead um, is to organize um, and align our work on climate around um, targets and goals on addressing climate change. And what we focus mostly on is what we call natural climate solutions, which are, are basically um, um, tapping into um, the vast potential of nature as a solution to climate change. Um, and what we, what our research has shown is that at least 30% of what's needed to solve climate change in terms of emissions reductions and removals can be achieved from nature itself. So by stopping deforestation, restoring ecosystems and managing them more effectively, um, that's 30%, almost one third of what's needed to solve climate change, but at the same time is only receiving 2% of global climate finance. And so my job is to, um, is to tap into the expertise of, of Conservation International um, to catalyze action and impact to correct that mismatch, that, that imbalance between the amount of uh, potential that nature holds and the amount of attention, awareness, and funding that it's receiving. Um, and so I work with our, our uh, with my colleagues around the world and here in Arlington um, to see how we can we can build a program um, that that does indeed unlock that potential of nature, whether it be through the development of innovative 
financing mechanisms, um, communications, and and talking about climate change in an effective way, um, so that the the role of nature is understood and that it's actionable. Um, and so that's really what what my job represents is is um, uh, identifying that vision um, and then um, uh, steering the organization in a way that we can achieve those goals. So how exactly can nature help us to solve climate change? So uh, about 11% of annual emissions um, come from the, the burning and clearing of tropical forests. Um, and at the same time, when trees grow, they take carbon out of the atmosphere. And so um, if you add up the potential of first stopping deforestation, so stopping the loss of carbon-rich ecosystems, because trees, their trunks, their leaves, and the soil store vast amounts of carbon. Um, and, and particularly coastal forests like mangroves can store carbon up to uh, 10 um, or 15 meters below ground. Um, and so these, these ecosystems are chock full of, of carbon. And when they're cleared, um, it, that carbon goes up into the atmosphere. And so a large portion of, of our annual um, uh, contribution to climate change comes from the destruction of those ecosystems. The first thing that we need to do is stop them from being lost. Um, and, and whether it's being lost to development or to agricultural expansion, there are ways that we can address and confront those, um, those drivers and those pressures and the loss of those ecosystems. So that's one piece. Um, and then the second piece is restoration. Uh, places that have already been cleared um, uh, or, or degraded land, um, if we can put in, uh, if we can replant and re- re- restore those those um, hundreds of millions of hectares around the world, that um, ha- is 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 a, ben- a significant benefit because um, the only technology that we have today to remove carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere at scale is a tree. And so restoration is really one of the most important things that we can do um, to tackle climate change. And you put those two together um, and you have a really powerful solution set to address climate change. Would you argue that humans can continue to consume and produce carbon at the rate that we're currently doing so if we protect forests and also restore degraded forests? Yeah. So what the research shows is that if we don't, if we only focus on energy and renewables um, and other types of climate solutions, electric cars, which are all necessary, but if we only focus on those and we ignore nature, we are we're not going to hit our, our targets. There's no way that we can solve climate change without nature. Um, and so uh, I, I think if we continue going down this path, um, it'll get to the point um, where um, we. It's, it will become irreversible, essentially. And so um, there's some really important immediate steps that need to be taken. We know that emissions need to peak in 2020. So that means that emissions need to, at a global level start going down in about two and a half to three years. Um, and so we have, we have that time. We have three years to start making those shifts and those transitions to uh, ensure that emissions go down and that they hit zero, net zero, by 2050. Um, that's really what's needed. That's what the science says needs to happen. And if we have an, if we want a reasonable chance of limiting warming um, to a level that will prevent the most dangerous impacts of climate change. All right. 
So to give us a, a clear idea of what you do, could you take us through a typical day at work for yourself? Sure. So um, I travel quite a bit. So um, oftentimes um, I will uh, visit some of our, our programs in the field um, to understand um, more about, about those programs, provide advisory support um, to meet with colleagues and partners face to face. Um, and so uh, I, I get to travel to some really wonderful places. Um, some that have, have stood out for me include Bali in Indonesia. We have a, a really great marine program there um, to the Atlantic forest and Atlantic coast of Brazil um, to um, the rainforests in Indonesia. Um, and so um, I think that's my favorite part of the job is is. Uh, having the opportunity to to see the on the ground impact of some of the programs that we've we've been implementing, but then more importantly, use those experiences um, to find opportunities for scaling those solutions and applying them in different ways. Um, I think that's that's the benefit of of having the opportunity to to work across many different programs. Um, but when I'm here in Arlington, um, which I am today, um, I. Uh, usually have a lot of meetings, um, and so I, I spend a lot of time talking to colleagues, um, working through solutions, brainstorming. We use white words here a lot, um, trying to, to um, conceptualize and, and map out um, a system to understand what are some of those um, levers that, that we need to pull um, if we want to see changes. Um, proactively reaching out to partners and, and, and my counterparts in other organizations to learn more about their priorities, to see how we can work together. So I spend a lot of time on the phone or visiting other organizations um, in person. Um, but uh, yeah, definitely spend a lot of my time interacting with people. Okay, so it sounds like your job deals um, most directly with policy. Do you deal directly with science at, in any portion or capacity, or is there someone else on your team who is the climate change lead scientist? Um, how is science involved in Conservation International's approach to climate change? Yeah, so Conservation International um, firmly believes that all of our solutions need to be grounded in sound science. And so we have a phenomenal um, division that is is um, solely focused on the the creation um, of, of of science that's that's in service of achieving our goals, and so um, we have um, some some really exciting um, research that's underway. Um, I, I can give a, a, a few examples of a colleague, um, Lee Hanna, who's doing um, research on. Um, agricultural frontiers. So he's essentially looking at how climate change is going to affect the uh, viability or suitability of, of crops, of, of the planting of crops around the world to understand how those frontiers are going to shift um, and to, to, to then be able to give us the opportunity to assess the potential conflicts for the use of land. So for example, in the future, if an area that's under cultivation for corn today Maybe in 10 years, we'll, we won't be able to grow corn. Maybe a different crop like wheat will be more suitable in that area. What does that mean for our planning? What does that mean for the farmers who rely on those crops for their livelihood? What does it mean if there's going to be a, a land use conflict 
if it's a protected area today and, and is suitable for growing um, an important crop in the future, how do we make those tough decisions about food versus protected areas, um, especially when there's um, uh, food security issues um, at hand? So we have um, a lot of really interesting research that comes out of um, that division. We're also looking at how to bring together um, our work with, with that of, of premier um, academic institutions like MIT. We have partnerships with, with MIT and Arizona State University um, to see how we can we can complement um, the the work in the in, in academia. Um, also looking at, at, at issues like artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, how can we use those types of tools um, to, to be more targeted and affected, uh, effective in our approach to conservation. Um, and so all of our work really um, needs to be evidence-based and, and, and supported by science. And so we work really closely with um, the science team to co-create what those questions should be. Um, identify what are some of those really important questions that we need answers to in the short term versus what are some of our longer term research opportunities or priorities. Um, and we have a number of, of um, experts in the in the science division that work specifically on climate change with whom I coordinate very closely um, and, and, and help match up those those questions in that research with our, the audiences and the messages and the policies and, and corporate engagements that we're working on um, with respect to climate change. So I'd like to know what kind of projects or programs you, um, you specifically are responsible for as the climate change lead. So I'm responsible for our overall strategy. So I do a lot of, um, uh, as my title suggests, strategizing um, on climate change. But in terms of um, the the uh, projects that I have um, responsibility over, um, we have organized our, um, our efforts on climate change around this concept of nature being 30 per- at least 30% of the solution to climate change. Um, and we're working on building a broader campaign um, and, and uh, collaboration with, with other organizations um, to elevate the role of nature as a climate solution. So um, uh, I, I do a lot of speaking. I, I, um, I'm, I'm doing a lot of um, partnership and relationship building with um, other organizations to see how we can align our messages. Um, uh, I also provide a lot of um, advisory input and support to um, our institutional partnerships on climate change, um, whether it be with companies um, or with financial institutions. Um, so I, I kind of have um, involvement in, the, in um, a wide range of projects, but the one that, that I'm really catalyzing or leading as an individual is, is our overall um, uh, awareness and um, action campaign on, on climate change. All right. So does Conservation International um, attempt to garner financial support from the public in any way? Uh, how does CI go about fundraising? So we have a, a pretty um, comprehensive approach to, to fundraising. So our, in, in terms of our, our source um, or, or how we sustain ourselves, a, a, a big portion of it comes from, um, from private philanthropy. Um, we also receive resources from, um, from grants for, uh, at a project level from foundations or from um, governments or from large multilateral organizations like the Green Climate Fund or the Global Environment Facility. 
Um, and so we have a, a, a pretty diverse um, uh, stream of, of revenue or um, of contributions that help sustain the organization. Um, and um, to some extent, we also do offer um, uh, the public to contribute from our website. Um, but our, we, we don't really have um, very large public advocacy um, or, or the, the smaller donation um, options. Um, but we do many events to try to um, socialize the impact of our work, inspire people, um, and 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 gain more more uh, support for this for the work that we do. All right. So now I'd like to ask you, how are NGOs like Conservation International affected by the government? Can the government be an obstacle for Conservation International in implementing, uh, say, climate change initiatives? So I think that the most direct way that um, the government um, impacts an, an NGO um, is, for example, in, in the availability of funding for a lot of programs around the world. Um, the, uh, for example, USAID and State Department have um, traditionally um, supported a lot of capacity building um, and implementation work that um, we've been able to implement. And so the um, reduction in the availability of, of these grants um, inhibits um, our ability and and, uh, and the opportunity to um, implement really important and necessary programs around the world. Um, appropriations and, and the amount of budget that's given uh, to uh, uh, assistance, assistance accounts is also um, another way that the, the government has a direct impact on NGOs. Um, but I would say that generally, um, I think we've reached a moment in time where the general public is fully uh, uh, convinced of the importance of acting on climate change and that we've seen an uptick in the amount of uh, awareness and uh, motivation on the part of companies and subnational um, authorities, whether it be mayors, cities, governors of states, um, have expressed an, an overwhelming um, reaction of, of support and engagement with with us and with with the environmental community um, to to act on climate change. So I'll say that um, uh, it's, there's definitely been um, you know a, a, a negative uh, impact from a reduced funding or attention um, or, or importance of acting in, uh, on climate change. And it, it's compromised um, the United States position globally. Um, but at the same time, I see a lot of hope and opportunity in working with um, the, the engaged private sector and communities around the, the country. Okay. So how can a conservation NGO be effective despite limitations caused by governmental influence I think that an organization like, like Conservation International can continue to be relevant and continue to be, uh, can scale our impact. Um, in fact, we're needed now more than ever in the absence of, of um, government um, involvement or engagement on these issues. Um, and so for us, I really see it as a moment of, of empowerment because um, to me, it highlights how important um, NGOs are to be active in this space, to keep the public informed, to give the public an opportunity to do something and to, to, uh, to really meaningfully 
fill that void. So I'll say that that for me, it really is um, the time for us to lean in and to step up and and more aggressively and actively um, address these issues head on. All right. I think that's a great note to end on. Shyla, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure speaking with you. That was Shyla Raghav, Climate Change Lead at Conservation International. Up next, we have Rebecca Shaw, Chief Scientist at the World Wildlife Fund. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Anika Hasra. With me now is Rebecca Shaw, Chief Scientist at the World Wildlife Fund. Rebecca, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks so much for having me today. It's really a pleasure to talk with you. All right, so let's start off first with just a brief overview of what WWF does as a conservation NGO. WWF is a global conservation NGO. We have 6,000 professionals around the globe working in 100 countries to uh, protect nature and the natural systems that sustain human health and well-being. I can go on to explain in depth what that means, if you would like. Sure, let's um, hear about the mission. Uh, WWF's mission is to stop the degradation of the planet's natural environment and to build a future in which humans live in harmony with nature, a future in which we are sustaining nature in a way that sustains us. So we do that by focusing on the world of biodiversity. Biodiversity is a fancy word, but it actually just means all the diversity of habitats and um, birds and animals and uh, natural resources that we depend on, clean air, clean water, and of course, a clean ocean. And we also, to make sure that those stay healthy, we promote the reduction of pollution and wasteful consumption. So we make sure that we're living within, uh, within the boundaries of nature so that we can sustain it. Um, in order to achieve this mission, WWF focuses uh, broadly on a range of big ecosystems that your audience will recognize readily, including forests, oceans, freshwater, wildlife, our climate system, and of course, uh, a system that is uh, near and dear to all of our hearts, our food systems, our agricultural systems that for sure we understand immediately why those are important. So can you, tell you, can you tell me some of the uh, programs you guys have in place at WWF? Yeah, uh, at WWF, as I mentioned before, we work on these big systems of the world, the forest, oceans, freshwater, wildlife, climate, and food. And so we organize ourselves around those, um, those systems, and we ask ourselves, how are they working? Um, we look at each system carefully using science to understand uh, how the systems work, how human demands on those systems change the ecosystems, what our dependence is, and how to better manage each of those ecosystems uh, to ensure that they stay viable in the future so we stay viable in the future. Once we understand that, we begin work with local communities, local and national governments, the development community, the financial world, the tech community, ag and food businesses, the fashion industry. I mean, really just a wide variety 
of partners to make sure that our activities in the places that are most important support nature that so nature can support us. And I'm happy to give you an example if that would be helpful. Sure. WWF uh, for years has worked uh, in the Amazon rainforest. As you know, Amazon rainforest is one of the most ecologically diverse places on the planet, but it's also really important for sustaining our global climate system because the rainforest stores so much carbon. It's critically important for supporting wildlife that uh, occurs nowhere else, such as their jaguars and, and some of the most beautiful birds on the planet, including the macaws. It supports healthy marine and, and uh, or healthy, healthy freshwater and coastal fisheries. It stabilizes the Earth's climate. But one thing that some people don't know is in many, many places around the world, big forests like this are really important for ensuring that local weather systems continue to provide clean fresh water to millions of people. And this is true for Brazil. Um, the bulk of the Amazon rainforest is in Brazil, and the people in southern Brazil depend um, on that rainforest to continue to uh, support the weather patterns that, that provide them with cr- uh, clean and fresh water. Um, when we were watching the deforestation rates on the rise, and many of these things that we depend on the Amazon rainforest for were threatened, WWF partnered with the government of Brazil, uh, the World Bank, which is a global uh, financial institution, and the Moore Foundation, which is a private foundation based out of California, to help establish and finance the world's largest systems of parks to protect the rainforest. This park system is the size of one and a half Californias. So um, uh, California is 100 million acres. So this is 150 million acres. It's huge. And in so doing, we made sure that this system was going to stay intact for generations to come. But we don't stop there because we also know that Uh, Even though the Amazon rainforest is incredibly important for sustaining the local weather patterns and the climate and the wildlife, it's also really important as um, a food production system, not just for the Brazilians and the other Amazonian countries, but also for the globe. Um, So we went to work with some of the world's largest food and agricultural companies in coordination with local communities to develop methods for producing food like soybeans, in a manner that would protect their water resources and their forests in the future so that the two the two systems, the food system and the forest system, are being managed uh, productively to ensure that they both are able to deliver what humans need from them long into the future. Okay, so WWF aims to protect specific types of habitat. Like you just mentioned, one of them is forests, tropical forests. Mm-hmm. Uh, does the organization also aim to protect certain species of animals? Yeah, I think one of the, absolutely. And we work uh, globally to uh, uh, protect um, biodiversity. And so biodiversity is one of these words that's thrown around and often the meaning isn't well understood. But biodiversity is the diversity of life on Earth, both at this level, at species level, at habitats, at ecosystem level, and at the functioning of those systems. So one of the things we focus on at the very top of that pyramid is the, is the protection of species. Um, ecological systems, um, as you probably know, are, are intricate 
and uh, the different elements and the different species depend on one another for support of that system. So we believe that wildlife in many of these places are important to protect, not just so that we can uh, see them into the future, but also because they are an intricate part of the of the food web that sustains ecosystems, clean uh, water, clean uh, air. So that when we think about protecting elephants in Africa, when we think about uh, protecting tigers in Asia, we're not just protecting those species, but we're also protecting the habitats that provide a home for them to live and they provide other important services to humans. What kind of criteria does WWF use to determine which species to target for protection? There are different ways in which you can decide which is uh, a priority. Um, WWF will both identify global priorities and work together with multiple countries to implement those priorities. But we also have to um, be aware that in each country where we work, there are going to be national priorities. And so those often the, the countries where we work will define what the priorities will be at a local scale. Both of the protecting species, both at that local scale and at that big scale, are very, very important. One of the um, efforts that we got involved in and that we helped launch was an effort called uh, T times two or the doubling of tigers on the planet by the year 2022. Uh, tigers had been decimated uh, in their population globally in every region where they where they were located, primarily because they they are had been perceived in many places as a threat to humans, but they also but they also uh, require a lot of habitat. Big um, big predators like uh, the tiger, like the lion, like the cheetah, and others really need a lot of habitat. And much of what we do as we expand our food systems is we encroach upon that habitat and we we change the habitat from a forest to a pasture land or to a uh, or to a um, agricultural land in order to produce more food. And that's what's been happening globally, every place where tigers persist. So in 2010, WWF and partners held a tiger summit in St. Petersburg. Um, and the um, 13 tiger range uh, countries committed to doubling the world's uh, population of tigers by 2022. And so that means every single one of these countries got together and committed that they were going to make sure that they were protecting the tigers that existed, protecting them from poaching and hunting, because uh, still in some places around the planet, uh, people buy uh, tiger parts because uh, it's culturally acceptable to do so. We're trying to uh, shut down the market on wildlife, uh, illegal wildlife animal part trade. And the other thing is the countries of the world are also doing everything they can to expand the habitat to allow tigers to live, to expand the habitat where they breed, to expand the uh, habitat where they roam, and to put in place um, uh, protections uh, to make sure that they uh, stay safe and that humans stay safe in existence with these tigers. So the the training and the working with local communities to make sure that they can protect themselves at, while they support the conservation of tigers is really important. We're doing the same in Africa with African elephants, with rhinos in Africa, and uh, many other species across the globe. So how can we go about finding a balance between species protection and also and habitat protection and also agriculture. So how can we balance setting aside habitat for endangered species such as tigers and also setting aside habitat 
for food production? Yeah, I think one of the things, I think that is that is a great question, a really great question. And it's one of the most urgent questions uh, of our generation, for sure. I, I think one of the things that's hard to understand is that WWF works on, on species protection and food production because it's the two are um, inextricably linked. As our demands on the food system and our um, as our population grows and we uh, need more and more food to feed that population, we need to figure out ways to produce more and more food. What we're trying to do at WWF is to figure out how you produce more and more food to feed the population while maintaining that habitat. And it can't be done like it's been done in the past. So in the past, when we wanted more food, we just knocked down more forests and then put in more put in more uh, cropland. At this time, what we really need to focus on, and this is why we focus so closely and partner with um, agricultural companies and food companies, is we need to figure out how to produce more food on the cropland we already have so we can... Uh, intensify production where we where we are already growing food, so we can protect the forest and the animal habitat that uh, that persists today. It's not; it won't be or sustainable in the future for us to continue to knock down forests and to convert habitat to make food, to make more food. We need to be smarter about how we do it in the future, and there are lots of ways to do that. The one of the, the key choices that um, uh, that I have made in my life to make sure that we can do that is not only to work on these issues as the chief scientist at WWF, but is also to understand that what I eat on a daily basis and the choices I make really matter to the future uh, uh, for my for my son. So I choose to eat less meat because if um, I think uh, lots of people know this, but others don't, that you actually, it takes a lot, a lot, a lot of food to produce a a little bit of of meat. And so if you can just eat the vegetables and eat eat the food as the primary source and not the beef, actually as much, you can produce a lot more food for a lot more people on the globe. The other thing is, so, so the first choice is, um, eat more vegetables, more fruits, uh, and more um, uh, uh, plant-derived um, uh, food uh, and less meat. It doesn't mean you don't eat any meat. It just means eat less meat overall. Uh, and as a popula- our population grows, that every single human's choice is going to matter a lot in the future. The other thing you can do is really to think about what other kinds of foods can give you what meat provides. And this is one of the really interesting things that's happening across the food system right now is there's lots of companies, including tech companies, that are looking at alternative protein sources. Are there plant-based protein sources that you, where you can make um, uh, a hot dog or a hamburger that tastes like beef or tastes like meat, but it's not beef, that has a has less impact on the planet. So that's another way to intensify our production and make sure that we are still allowing ourselves some of those things that we really like, those tastes we really like, without having to have, uh, without having to destroy the planet as we do so. So just simple choices in, in how you think about food and what you do with food in your everyday life is really important. The last one that is probably as important as, uh, as eating less meat is not wasting food. 
So 40% of all food that is, that is produced on this planet is wasted. That means that we have 40% of the agricultural land that is, that is used to produce food, uh, inefficiently. So we're wasting that much. So we could intensify our food production on the existing cropland and not waste food and lower our meat consumption. And we would have, uh, we would be able to save room for world's wildlife like tigers, like elephants, uh, like the rhinos and like the snow leopard. Well said. So WWF is one of the most well-known conservation NGOs out there. Uh, so how does the organization go about attracting public attention and support? So WWF understands um, uh, across the globe how important people are to the change that we're seeking. People are at the center of it, center of creating the change. Uh, communities across the world are at the center of, of, the, of making the change. And if, if they don't understand it, they don't believe it, they're not going to create the change. And so it's really important, and we understand this globally in all 100 countries where we work, that we're connecting to communities and we're connecting to um, the, the citizens of the globe in ways that connect with the way they understand the, the, their, their environment. So in the U.S., we do this. We do this in a variety of different ways via stories that matter in the media, like illegal wildlife trade, climate change, whether or not there is clean, fresh water for different communities to drink. We do this through social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, because so many people are consuming information on on those platforms now. And then we do them through um, monumental environmental events, such as Earth Hour or climate change conferences like November's COP23, and through our website at worldwildlife.org. We also have a magazine that's available to members called World Wildlife that explains a lot of our work. And we also do uh, public campaigns around some of our biggest efforts to either stop illegal fishing, stop illegal wildlife trade, or to um, limit carbon pollution to stop climate change. So there's lots of ways in which we work both at the community level and, in, and within the media to help people uh, connect with our issues so that they can become a part of the change. There is one initiative in particular that I'd like to ask you about. It's called Natural Habitat Adventures. So this is basically a form of ecotourism that's uh, hosted by WWF. So could you explain um, what this is in a little more detail and how it works? Yeah. Natural Habitat Adventures um, has been WWF's uh, official travel travel partner since 2003. Um, Through this, we have hundreds of trips around the globe throughout Africa, Asia, Arctic, Pacific uh, and in North and South America. And when you travel with WWF uh, through Natural Habitat Adventures, you really do become a part of the effort of WWF for conservation um, and meeting the most pressing conservation challenges around the globe. And so we try to combine conservation travel, sustainable travel, and a learning opportunity in a way that supports the protection of nature uh, and wildlife and a local conservation. The, the money that is, the, the tourism dollars help to 
actually, uh, they go back into the, our, um, our working communities and to help uh, us protect nature. And, um, it helps really, it's, it's one of our, um, most powerful outreach tools for people who uh, want to travel and want to travel sustainably. The, the other, the other one I do think is really, I think the other side of that, because often people can't travel for whatever reason, they can't be a part of that kind of thing. There are other, um, avenues to engage with the World Wildlife Fund. Um, certainly, if you visit the, the, the World Wildlife Fund's uh, website, there is uh, always a take action button that helps you understand different ways you can engage. You can join Panda Nation, which is a way to uh, develop an event with your community, with your friends that helps to uh, contribute to World Wildlife Fund efforts to protect nature globally. And we also have a, um, we also have an elite squad of conservation advocates called Panda Ambassadors. Um, they are on the front lines of WWF's mission to conserve nature and to help us with our um, efforts to protect nature globally. And they work with their communities um, uh, at crucial and high level moments of action. So they, they engage with, through social media and through, with their networks on social media to activate their, uh, communities to help us achieve some of our campaign goals. And so all of those ways are ways in which you can engage and actively be a part of the solution that matters to your future. So now I'd like to focus more on you and your role at WWF. Um, but first, I'd like to ask you, why did you choose to work for this particular NGO? Um, I have, uh, so I, I was, I came to work for WWF because of the potential for the kind of change that I would like to see on the planet. I'm, I'm, um, deeply concerned about the, the future of our communities across the globe. I'm deeply concerned uh, for my son's future uh, that we need to take action at a global scale on many of these environmental issues to ensure that he and his family have clean water, clean air, and a stable climate. And I felt like WWF was the place I could come and have the greatest impact at this point in time. Um, that has a lot to do with WWF's global reach. Um, my deeply held value that you need to work with communities and work within communities for change and WWF ha is grounded in communities across the globe and that you need to do things that are, you need to um, activate people to be engaged in ways that are socially and culturally responsible um, to uh, how they view the planet. And it's that through that understanding that you can really create uh, create change. So WWF is the right institution for me at the right time to be able to bring um, bring sophisticated science, both in natural sciences and our understanding of tigers and lions, and and also um, the sophisticated social sciences and technological sciences, and combine those sciences in a way that help us. Um, help us work with partners better to achieve uh, conservation in the future. And what exactly do you do as chief scientist at WWF? I'm responsible for overseeing our global lead science team, which has uh, social scientists, natural scientists, data scientists, and technology technologists, 
and food scientists and overseeing them to help develop our global strategies that connect with our local community work in a way that creates change. And what we also have to do is design the measurement system to make sure that we know we're having the change we seek. Uh, we're not just engaging act- activities across the globe. We actually know when we engage that they're impactful. And if they're not in- impactful, it's my job to measure how they are succeeding and failing and help the conservation practitioners actually realign our strategies so that we can be more impactful. It's understanding how the system works. You need science for that. You under- you need science for the development of how you're going to actually work to create a change, and then you need measurement to, to know whether you're actually creating the change you intend. What does it take for someone to land a leadership position like yours at a conservation NGO? What kind of expertise and experience does one need to have? Um, uh, wh- one of the things I think is most critical in, is just a full-on uh, passion for the, the work that you do. <laughs> I, I think because it's that passion that drives you to get up every day to seek more and more information, to seek out more and more people to help you to find solutions. Uh, I will tell you, when I was in graduate school, when I was an undergraduate, I could not have charted a course explicitly to this job. Um, I was in a field, I worked on the impacts of climate change on uh, ecosystems for my graduate degree. And that was at a time when when climate change was just beginning to be uh, an issue in the early 90s. But it certainly wasn't mainstream, and it certainly was very, it was an obscure idea for most um, most people at that time. And most conservation organizations and most environmental organizations were not addressing it. If I had charted, wanted to chart a course to my job today, it would have been a fool's decision to choose climate change because no conservation organizations were working on the issue. It turns out to be one of the biggest issues that uh, facing conservation today. I I suspected that, but I was really um, working to uh, be a better scientist, to better understand the systems, and to really be able to um, understand the impacts globally. Uh, once it became... Uh, because of the work of many of my colleagues became a much bigger issue than my skill sets became in demand. But I tell you, every step of the way, every job I've had, I've loved, I felt like I've had impact, and I felt like it was because I was doing what I love to do, and because I was doing what I love to do, I was good at it. And I think that that's the main message, is that it's really hard because of how fast the world is changing to chart a course to a position like this. But if you wake up every morning absolutely loving what you do, it's really possible to get the next magical position in the future that you, can yet, you can't even dream of yet today. All right, Rebecca, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk with me today. If you want to learn more about Shaila Raghav or Rebecca Shaw, you can check out their links and social media on our website at www.scienceforthepeople.ca. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. 
Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. <laughs>